coming up on Economics Explored? The better solution is to realize that we are on a highly precarious uh, fiscal trajectory, even under the best circumstances. And now is the time to adjust our fiscal scenario to reduce the growth in spending. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 159 on the US federal budget and debt. My guest is Romina Boccia, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Romina is concerned that the US is on a path toward a fiscal crisis. We chat about why this is so and what can be done about it. Please check out the show notes for relevant links and details of how you can get in touch. You can send me an email or a voice message. Please get in touch and let me know what you think about what either Romina or I have to say in this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Righto. Now for my conversation with Romina Boccia about the US federal budget. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Cross, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Romina Boccia, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, great to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Gene. Oh, it's, uh, it's excellent. Uh, so you've joined Cato in recent months, haven't you, Romina? And I read uh, one of your pieces in which uh, you were introducing yourself at Cato and you wrote that, Today I am joining the Cato Institute to do my part to prevent a severe U.S. fiscal crisis by restraining the federal budget leviathan. I'll write and speak about federal spending, the budget process, the economic implications of rising debt, and social security and Medicare reform. So really big topics there. To start off with, could I ask you, what do you mean by a fiscal crisis? Just how bad do you think things uh, currently are? How bad could they get in the US? Yes. You know, the thing with a uh, fiscal crisis is a bit like uh, when uh, whether you're entering a recession or not, that you don't quite know uh, if you're in it until you're in it. And um, in, in the United States scenario, there are quite a few factors that make it even more difficult to predict if or when a fiscal crisis might occur, because um, the United States, of course, as you're aware, uh, provides the U.S. dollar, which is a world, the primary world reserve currency, which allows the United States government to get away with um, a lot worse fiscal policy than another nation state might. But that doesn't mean that lawmakers in the United States can just rest on those laurels and think that they can spend and borrow as much as they would like in order to satisfy their constituents' um, spending demands without facing any consequences for that. So what I mean by uh, fiscal crises, and we've seen this um, in various countries over the course of uh, roughly 800 to 1,000 years of history, Carmen. Uh, Kenneth Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt did an excellent book on this, that um, despite a small mistake they made in a research paper, which was corrected later on, uh, still stands in its lessons. And that was over 800 years of 
uh, history of uh, public debt and how that affects um, the countries that accumulate debt debt. And so in, uh, in the scenario of a U.S. fiscal crisis, we could potentially face uh, a, a sudden and very high rise in interest rates, uh, much higher and much more sudden than we're currently experiencing. And that uh, could result in disrupting productive investments, severely lead us into a, a significant uh, a recession. And um, this could also potentially precede an episode of hyperinflation, which is something that other countries have lived through in the past. I'm originally from Germany. Uh, that has a history of hyperinflation after World War II. Um, and, uh, and that type of rapid, accelerating, out-of-control inflation um, would be very, very damaging uh, to the country, disrupting employment, markets, and causing a tremendous pain for U.S. households. And uh, even just you know the recent bout of inflation uh, which was quite severe and um, not something that the U.S. population has experienced in a long time, um, even that doesn't come close to what we might potentially face in a hyperinflationary scenario. And uh, in the long run, if the U.S.'s fiscal standing were to change significantly, if the dollar were to lose its prominent status as a world reserve currency, if um, uh, markets, employment, investment were severely disrupted. Um, if inflation got out of control and the Fed wasn't able to put this uh, genie back in the bottle, it could also have other unforeseen ramifications affecting the security and global standing of the United States as an economic powerhouse, as a foreign powerhouse, and also um, its um, its attractiveness uh, as a destination for for immigrants, investment, etc. Um, my point is that uh, lawmakers are playing with fire, and uh, the sooner they come to uh, reckon with that fact and start making amends, um, the higher the likelihood that we will be able to avert such a fiscal crisis. Um, but it's it's a tough pill to swallow because the programs that are driving us into this uh, large and rising debt and that could potentially precipitate a fiscal crisis um, in the future, who knows when, um, those are also the most popular federal government programs, namely Social Security and Medicare, which is why in my work I want to be focused on making reforms uh, to those drivers of growing spending. Right, Okay. So you mentioned hyperinflation, and we had a I had a conversation in the last episode about hyperinflation, and you referred to the hyperinflation. So Germany had very yeah, it had hyperinflation after uh, the First World War, after yeah, in the Weimar Republic, and I mean, there's a certain set of circumstances that lead to hyperinflation. I mean, a breakdown of your economic system, really, your tax the ability to raise taxes and then the government turns on the printing press. So that that's the worst case. Uh, but short of that, you're, I think you're, you're, you're concerned about them. Are you concerned about them having to make rapid adjustments, cutting other, uh, other programs to, to be able to service the interest bill or having to raise taxes? Is that the type of scenario you're, you have in mind? I think in a, in a, 
um, lower severity scenario, what we what we'll see is much higher tax rates in the United States in the future, which will negatively impact growth and um, standards of living, and uh, could also undermine the United States as a as a as an innovation powerhouse. Um, there's also a scenario where um, the debt continues to rise. Lawmakers avoid tax increases, and we find ourselves in more of a Japan-like stagnation, where the economy barely grows, or maybe growth is even negative for some period of time. Um, that's another. That's another alternative, which is also not uh, a very desirable. Um, or in a in a worse scenario, you know, I don't. I don't see lawmakers making rapid changes to Social Security and Medicare unless they had no other options left. Yeah, because their primary interest is to get reelected. So um, I would I could see us more likely entering into a, a, a high inflation scenario in an attempt to continue to pay these benefits, despite n- there not being the revenue for it and. Um, you know, the United States can can and does print its own money. And we've seen several bouts of a so-called quantitative easing, which are a version of that, where um, where that that unfortunately to me seems more likely than um, significant changes to entitlement programs, unless we can strike some kind of a grand bargain, which has happened in other nations before. Uh, one scenario I find quite illustrative is um, Sweden went through some significant budgetary reforms, changed uh, many of its means-tested and other uh, social insurance programs. And while Sweden still has much higher tax rates than the United States, they've they've been able to get to a place where they're roughly balancing their budget over time. And uh, and that is certainly a more stable scenario than the, the rapid um, and at times accelerating increase in the deficit that we've seen in the United States. Of course, we're coming out of a very highly unusual period of time with massive supplemental spending bills uh, due to the COVID pandemic and uh, uh, unprecedented deficits. And those are now uh, declining because Mm -hmm. we're not spending as much as we did during the pandemic, but still uh, U.S. spending is on a steep upward trajectory and most of it... uh, most of that growth will be financed by additional borrowing, which is uh, which is quite troubling. Yeah. So you've got deficits projected out for the next few decades, if I remember correctly. I think there was a CBO, or actually, yeah, Office of Management and Budget, Congressional and Congressional Budget Office. There's a chart from the Council on Foreign Relations. I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's got the federal deficit um, going from several percentage points of GDP, wherever it is now, and then over the next 30 years, it goes, and this is all business as usual if you just assume nothing changes, and I mean, hopefully something changes. They've got it getting up to over 13% of GDP. This is the deficit by 2050. Are these the types of projections you're looking at, Romina, and, and that's what's informing your commentary on this? Uh, yes. So the Congressional Budget Office is a very reliable primary source in the U.S. Congress. It's a nonpartisan um, uh, agency that provides information to Congress. 
Um, however, they are somewhat limited in how they do projections as well. And uh, there have been some questions about some of their assumptions pertaining to fertility and growth, and at times uh, underestimating uh, the poten a potential increase in higher interest rates. So there are some alternative scenarios as well that um, we, we consider as fiscal scholars. So we have a range of uh, potential outcomes that we look at. Um, none of them are, are, are very good. Um, the current uh, Congressional Budget Office projections are also in many ways uh, too optimistic right. because uh, the Congressional Budget Office is, um, is tasked with projecting the deficit and debt and spending levels based on assumptions of current policy. Now, there are many policies, especially tax policies, but also some spending policies in the, in the U.S. context that um, have been intentionally adopted for a temporary period of time, like certain middle-class tax cuts that are um, slated to expire that were put in place by the Trump administration uh, by 2025. And um, it seems highly unlikely that Congress will allow those to expire. Uh, because of the families and individuals, middle class families and individuals that would be affected, it would seem like that would not be very politically uh, popular. So if we run alternative assumptions where those tax cuts get extended, the um, the debt scenario going forward looks a lot worse. We're going from uh, 185% of GDP and publicly held debt um, over the next 30 years from the current 110% level um, to um, more than doubling uh, to 260% of GDP. And that, again, over 30 years doesn't take into account that there might be natural disasters, that there could be another war, or the U.S. might get involved in a current active war more so than it has in the past. Um, or that there could be another pandemic. I mean, lots of things can happen over the next 30 years, and uh, none of those are taken into account uh, with those projections. So again, the better solution is to um, realize that we are on a highly precarious uh, fiscal trajectory, even under the best circumstances. And um, now is the time to, to adjust uh, our fiscal scenario to uh, reduce the growth in spending. Mm -hmm. And um, because that's what's driving it, you know, uh, tax revenues are um, above their historical average level, um, even with the economy uh, slowing down. And uh, so that's not what's driving the growth in the debt and the deficit. It's, it's, it's very much um, spending and primarily spending on so-called entitlement programs. And they're entitlement programs because you don't have to be poor. You don't have to, um, yeah, you don't have to be in, in grave need in order to qualify. Um, Medicare and Social Security are primarily old age entitlements uh, with some contributions made by individuals over their lifetimes, but not contributions in the sense of contributions made to, say, a 401k, which is the U.S. retirement account that individuals contribute to. They make their defined uh, contributions and then they own um, those assets in those accounts. That's not how these programs work. They're uh, tax and spend programs or um, pay-as-you-go programs where current workers are financing benefits, healthcare and retirement benefits 
for um, the retired generation. And um, of course, lawmakers were able to make promises to um, these individuals without concerning themselves with how those benefits would be paid. No provision was made um, to pay those benefits, even Social Security in the United States context, where for some time there were surpluses that the program was accumulating, but they were spent immediately on other federal government priorities. They weren't saved for Social Security. So now that those bills are coming due, Social Security is already running deficits. Those um, those those pr- those prior surplus funds, they they don't they don't exist anymore. Um, they would just spend on other priorities, and now Congress would need to raise taxes, or in in this case, um, they're borrowing more to make up for for that uh, discrepancy and what they've promised current uh, beneficiaries, current retirees, and what they're able to collect from current workers. Yeah, I remember reading in the eighties. Or well, maybe I read the book in the early 90s. The, the last time people were worried about the U.S. deficit and debt, and this was before the 90s, before Clinton and Gingrich uh, struck some sort of accommodation, struck, struck some sort of deal and then managed to get the budget under control for a while. Um, I remember there was a book by Benjamin Friedman who was at Harvard, and Day of Reckoning, and... And the concern there was because of the tax cuts in the 80s and the big spending on the the, the defence, uh, all of the defence spending, which, I mean, did in, uh, arguably led to the demise of the Soviet Union. So um, big tick there, but did blow out the deficit. Uh, I think the way Friedman described it was that there was a social security trust fund and the government just took the money out of it and put IOUs in it. So it is that right? It, is that roughly right? There, there what? And I think I think this is what you were talking about. There was a surplus, but then that money was spent on other purposes. Yes, the um, that's roughly right. The Social Security Trust Fund is mainly it's an accounting mechanism, but it it isn't a a trust fund like you would think about it in the economic or investment sense, uh, because those trust investment trust funds would hold real economic assets. Um, mm. could be a portfolio of stocks and bonds, um, treasury securities, cash, uh, you name it. The Social Security Trust Fund is an accounting mechanism for internal governmental purposes. It basically is a provision in law that allows Social Security to continue to pay benefits even when current taxes are no longer sufficient to pay for those benefits and um, to find the money elsewhere, in this case, from the treasury through borrowing by selling more U.S. debt in um, in open markets, but uh, those yeah those assets uh, there were no assets in it ever. Um, the way it works is uh, when employers pay payroll taxes or self-employed individuals pay their payroll taxes, they go to the treasury just with with their income taxes and every uh, uh, and all other tax revenue that um, the treasury is collecting. Um, there's no distinction made whether those are payroll taxes that are supposed to be designated for Social Security or income taxes or, or corporate taxes. Um, it all gets muddled uh, at that point. And, uh, and then that money just goes out for current government spending. Um, the U.S. federal government doesn't have a policy of, sa- of saving. Um, and, uh, and, and so that never happened. Now, 
the best way, in my view, to establish financial security in old age for individuals if you're going to have a mandatory government program to, let's say, help individuals to, to save uh, for, their, for their later years, because apparently we don't trust individuals to be able to do that for themselves, um, then the best way to do it is to do it in a defined contribution way. Uh, rather than the current system, which is more akin to a defined benefit system, mm. where um, you qualify for a certain benefit regardless of what you paid into the system or um, or how much money is in the system to pay out those benefits. Um, so a defined contribution system, you would actually set up a savings mechanism. You might invest those funds um, in the market. Now, I'm I'm not really comfortable with the federal government getting involved in that to a, a great degree. Um, I'd be much more comfortable with individuals being able to own and control the funds in their own accounts because the government, as always, is subject to special interest pressure. We're seeing this uh, in the United States with uh, pension funds on the state and local level right now, where you have special interest groups, especially the environmental left, pushing to disinvest from fossil fuels and and other um, areas of the economy that they disagree with, where there's uh, more concern for pushing a political agenda through um, these uh, public investments than um, the primary consideration, which should be um, gains for the beneficiaries of these accounts. Um, And I would see a very similar risk if the U.S. government adopted a a system of uh, private social security accounts but actually controlled the investments in those. Um, so much better for individuals to be able to control and own their own retirement funds. Uh, though in the big picture, I, I don't even think that that is uh, necessary anymore in, in the way for the federal government to get involved with. I think that the best role the government could play is just to provide a minimum level of uh, security in old age um, to, with the goal of uh, protecting older individuals from falling into poverty if they run out of their own own, uh, resources because they live longer than perhaps they were expecting or they had low incomes all their lives and were never really able to to save a whole lot or maybe they fell on hard times, their business uh, went uh, went, uh, bankrupt, you name it. There's all sorts of scenarios why individuals can find themselves in need of help. Um, But in terms of private retirement savings, we live in an era where it is so simple to set up um, auto-enrollment savings, to um, have automatic investments through target date retirement funds and other index funds where you don't have to be a financial whiz to uh, manage your own retirement investments. You can, uh, you can do so much more easily than was the case 85 years ago mm. when a social secu- security first originated. So I question the need for a forced, a government-based forced mechanism uh, for individuals to provide for their own security in old age. Um, I think a, a minimum poverty-level benefit uh, combined with uh, private individual savings um, that are owned and controlled by individuals themselves make much more sense and also take those funds out of the hands of the government, which, of course, uh, spent the money when uh, it was collecting Social Security funds. They didn't go towards Social Security in the end. They went to defense. They went to other social programs. 
They went to uh, subsidies and corporate welfare and all sorts of places, uh, but not for their intended use. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Can I ask about Social Security? So you're, are you suggesting that the level of Social Security in the US, it's too generous and that those benefits should be cut? Is that what you're suggesting? So, and that would encourage people to to uh, save in their own uh, retirement accounts. Yes, I'm very much suggesting this, and the benefits are too generous in a, in a number of ways. One of which is that the um, eligibility age for Social Security has barely budged in light of significant increases in life expectancy. Um, that means that the uh, number of years that been uh, that individuals are eligible to collect social security benefits has risen significantly uh while the number of years that they have to that they're required to work to qualify for those benefits has not and so you get an imbalance there where um when social security was first uh launched the eligibility age was actually um uh, above the life expectancy of of that age, mm. um, such that very few individuals were expected to ever claim that benefit. It was primarily set aside for um, those lucky or poor souls who outlived their peers. Uh, but today, the Social Security age, the early um, claiming age, is is still uh, sixty two. Right, and. Um, and individuals now live to be roughly 78, um, which is the current, uh, roughly the current life expectancy in the United States. And so there's many, many more years um, that individuals can claim those benefits, but they don't have to work any longer. So that has made the program more generous over time and also uh, more unaffordable. Uh, another factor is that the highest income earners receive the highest benefits from uh, Social Security and they need those uh, benefits the least. Yeah. So um, one way to um, fix uh, the financial picture and also focus benefits on those individuals who need them most, uh, if that it was the original intent of an old age income support program, would be um, to means test those benefits. Now, I think a fairer way to do this would be by adjusting the benefit formula. So the means test is not doesn't apply um, once individuals are in retirement, especially if they've done the right thing, they they work their uh, their whole lives, they set aside their own funds so they could enjoy a comfortable retirement. Uh, we don't want to penalize um, those individuals for doing the right thing, for saving for their own needs. Um, but there are ways of making the benefit formula more progressive that acts as a means test as well, uh, except it considers lifetime earnings uh, rather than um, just income in retirement. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Ramina. I, it didn't occur to me that that was uh, 
the case that you know, the more you earn, the more the government pays you in social security after when you retire. So I was just looking on the web and I'll put links in the show notes regarding this. So the average social social security benefit is $1,657 per month. That was in January 2022. So conceivably there are people getting more than that from the federal government each month as in social security. And yeah, I can see the logic in in changing that uh, formula. You're correct about the average social security uh, benefit, but the um, some higher income earners uh, can collect closer to $3,300 per month in social security benefits. And that doesn't account for, um, if you're looking at a married couple, an additional spousal benefit that um, that would uh, bring their social security benefit more in the $4,500 to $5,000 per month range. Yeah. And some of these households probably don't need it because they've got other assets. They own their own home. They've got investments, et cetera. Okay. Now that's uh, that's social security. Is that the big? That's the big program driving the future deficits. Is it, or to what to what extent does uh, is it Medicare and Medicaid? Do they play a role too? Yes, um, Medicare is actually the elephant in the room because um, with social security, you're primarily looking at um, a fairly predictable benefit formula where you consider demographic factors like fertility rates, the number of new workers in the United States, including immigrants. Um, and then uh, when, do pe- when do people reach the eligibility age roughly in their mid-60s? And what is their life expectancy? And so right now we're going through a, a big uh, growth spurt in Social Security as the baby boomers um, started retiring at um, at significant rates, I want to say it was eleven thousand per day, um, ten thousand per day. I think it was ten thousand per day starting in two thousand eleven, and over a twenty-year period of time, we're moving through this big bubble of baby boomers entering the Social Security and Medicare systems. Um, once we're through that baby boom bubble, there's a, a decline in fertility after that baby boom, and so Social Security roughly levels out at six uh, percent of GDP. And then, you know, fluctuates uh, around uh, around there. But with Medicare, because you're looking at a health insurance program and health uh, care costs are rising steeply and don't seem to be slowing down. And what we also know is that healthcare is a, a luxury good where as societies become wealthier, they uh, desire to consume more health care. So uh, wealthier societies tend to Increase the portion of their budgets that they spend on healthcare. Um, not all of which is is uh, very well spent. We also know that uh, much of um, healthcare expenditures are going towards uh, signaling or showing that you care and um, paying for uh, tr- medical treatments for conditions that um, that don't respond well to those treatments uh, for a number of incentives, um, and that we're spending the most during um, individuals' final years of their lives where perhaps that additional dollar of healthcare spending isn't doing that much good anymore. But all of those factors are driving up the growth in healthcare spending. um, And that seems to be just going up. 
with the with none of that relieving end in sight, if you will, for where it would taper off. We can't. We don't know when or if it will taper off. And so Medicare is the big um, elephant in the room. And there too, you have very similar issues where, uh, again, the eligibility age is roughly 65. Um, it hasn't gone up as individuals are living longer. So increasing the retirement age and then indexing the age of eligibility to increases in life expectancy is a very common sense change that would help alleviate some of the cost drivers. And the other one, again, is that um, you should uh, consider how much of a healthcare subsidy you should be giving, if any, to um, to high income earners. Uh, th- those individuals who are capable of paying for their own health care in retirement should pay for a larger share of it so that you can focus benefits on those individuals who need them the most. Means testing is, is one very, um, very common sense uh, way of adjusting um, how much you know the program spends and who it spends that money on. And uh, to get more in line with uh, what incoming revenues um, and not to drive up the deficit too much. But in the big picture, I think we, we've come to over rely on a third party payment system where um, uh, there's a, a lot of treatments and even administrative costs are uh, skyrocketing um, because there's very little consumer interaction uh, in this marketplace. Um, so much is paid. Uh, the vast majority of healthcare expenditures are paid through insurance systems. I think the best uh, use of an insurance system is to pay for catastrophic healthcare, to pay for very expensive chronic conditions, to pay for um, you know uh, big accidents that in, uh, that incur large medical uh, costs for individuals, but not for routine healthcare needs. And that's uh, that's where we've ended up. Um, over over several decades of, of shifting towards a system of uh, third party payment and and one of the big reasons in the United States for that is uh, after World War II the uh, uh, healthcare uh, tax exclusion for employer provided healthcare has really driven up uh, the cost of healthcare in the United States and um, we should have fairer treatment for individuals who are self employed or who choose not to use their employer's healthcare to be able to at least get the same tax treatment as their employer. Better yet, uh, my colleague Michael Tanner at Cato has put forth a proposal where um, instead of employers buying health insurance for their employees, they could provide the funds that they would spend on their employees' health insurance through a health savings account. And then the employees themselves could decide how much of that they want to allocate towards health insurance and how much of that they might want to keep in those health savings accounts to pay for out-of-pocket costs, uh, such as getting a, a high deductible health insurance plan that's primarily focused on those catastrophic expenses uh, while paying for routine healthcare needs um, out of their health savings accounts. That would bring um, more consumer involvement into this marketplace, uh, which would also help with uh, price transparency as consumers become more educated as healthcare consumers. And uh, especially for routine treatments, start um, shopping around. Um, of course, that's not possible if you are being picked up in an ambulance because you just suffered from an emergency. But there are um, there are other scenarios where becoming a more cost conscious uh, patient and healthcare consumer uh, makes a lot of sense and can help to reduce costs. Mm. 
I'll have to look at Michael's work. So Michael Tanner, you mentioned his work. Uh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to come back to health in a future episode because I know there. Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, complicated area to look at. Um, on Medicare, Romina, do you have any figures on that? I mean, you mentioned that was it U.S. Social Security will get up to about six percent of GDP. Did I hear that right? And do you have any comparable figures for Medicare? Um, not to the top of my head, but the Congressional Budget Office uh, provides those in their budget and economic outlook. No worries, um, I'll, I'll check that I out. I'm more focused on Social Security because, as you just mentioned, uh, Medicare is its own uh, a complex bag of a variety of different policies. So we have a scholar solely dedicated to that. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I mean, I, my understanding is that yeah, social security's the yeah, that's the that's the big one. But then you're saying that yeah, Medicare's a it's an important issue too. Oh, it's approaching yeah, it's the approaching size it, of right. uh, social security. So between Medicare and social security, more than half of the federal government's budget goes towards these two programs. Okay, gotcha. So um, they make up the vast majority of federal spending now, and they're um, projected to grow significantly. Right. Do you have any concerns about defense spending at all? I mean, often one thing that's often pointed out is, Mm -hmm. well, I mean, the US spends much more than any other country on defense. Of course, you've got an important role in the the world uh, economic, or oh, the world geopolitical order, or however you'd like to describe it. Uh, so, um, have you looked at that, and do you have any thoughts on defense? No, not just defense, but uh, so the way that uh, the budget is um, is allocated in in the U.S. context is that there is a so-called discretionary spending, which makes up roughly uh, one third, and then. Um, there is the so-called mandatory or autopilot spending. And the key difference is that discretionary spending has to be voted on each and every year. Uh, for example, this week, the U.S. Congress is voting on defense and non-defense discretionary spending to avert a government shutdown because we're at the end of the fiscal year. Um, that is not the case for programs like Medicare and Social Security and even Medicaid, which uh, which which have... Uh, uh, authorizations um, which have uh, spending allocations that don't expire, so they can just continue spending even when the resources aren't there. But um, both non-defense and defense discretionary spending uh, has seen uh, large increases, um, especially during the pandemic. There's been large increases in um, in non-defense discretionary spending for a variety of of things, including support for state and local government to weather the pandemic. Um, various uh, handouts for special interest groups. Um, we just recently saw the CHIPS Act pass for the semiconductor industry in the United States and then the Inflation Reduction Act, which had a lot of Green New Deal policies to subsidize um, green energy and electric vehicles, et cetera. So there's been, um, while that spending, it doesn't get projected out, over um, the extended periods, 30 years, 50 years, 75 years, in the case of Social Security and Medicare, uh, because Congress um, appropriates it every single year. Um, We are seeing uh, a rise in discretionary spending, also in the area of emergency and uh, disaster relief, uh, with no budget or notional account to control that spending. So it's often used as as a loophole to to fund other priorities without going through the regular budget process. And yes, overall, I'm concerned about 
most aspects of the federal government uh, being on a growth trajectory and defense and uh, non-defense discretionary spending are very much um, in that uh, uh, in that sphere as well. Okay. So one uh, one solution there is to adopt uh, spending caps, and the U.S. has adopted those with some success in the past, with a little less success in the recent past. Um, but discretionary spending caps that set a goal or a level um, that then lawmakers have to fight over or um, uh, the public can hold them to account for can be very helpful. We don't have any discretionary spending caps right now. Um, and I think it, it sets up an, a good discussion when you have those to say, okay, if you truly believe that that is not sufficient and you need to spend more, what can we cut instead? Um, and then in, 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 in the more likely scenario, lawmakers are not going to want to cut anything. So instead, we get some discussion over offsetting spending cuts elsewhere, say in the mandatory portion of the budget, um, or if they agrees, agree to a spending increase, at least now we have something we can hold them to. So I do think it sets up a productive debate around the purpose of spending limits, uh, priorities for the federal government, what are true priorities and what are just uh, one-a-halves for uh, favorite lobbying groups um, so that uh, the public can do a better job also of holding their lawmakers accountable. And uh, there is an opportunity for the U.S. Congress um, the new Congress in the next year to impose more spending restraint. Uh, the debt limit uh, will approach again, likely uh, next summer, in the summer of 2023. And the debt limit is often a very effective action-forcing mechanism for uh, fiscal restraint. Uh, basically, lawmakers can make demands that uh, they won't increase the debt limit unless they're offsetting spending cuts or a uh, budget plan is put in place. And I think uh, uh, spending caps over the entire federal budget would be would be best so that Congress can budget within so-called unified budget, consider all priorities and needs uh, within context, and then make those necessary trade-offs. Um, but one, one good start, and those are easy to implement, would be discretionary spending caps on defense and non-defense. Right. Okay. I'll have to look back uh, and see some ex- uh, look for some examples of those spending caps in the past. That sounds really interesting. Uh, so yes, um, yeah, we had the the Budget Control Act of 2011 okay. that imposed spending caps for a period of roughly uh, ten years, but they were they were circumvented uh, several times. Um, but there were also some offsetting spending cuts to allow for those increases in defense and non defense. The other thing that has become um, sort of gimmicky in the U.S. context under President Obama and uh, the Democrats are continuing to try and push this. It's this idea of parity that uh, the defense account and the non-defense domestic discretionary accounts should be getting the same amount of money, um, which is just a goal that they have set as if it, this was some kind of a political game without any consideration for real needs, either in the domestic uh, economy or uh, on the defense side, the threats that the United States face, it's just an arbitrary target. We just want to get as much money as the other guys. And uh, that, that just doesn't make any sense at all. And I think, uh, I think the public should, uh, should call lawmakers out for that. Uh, parity doesn't make any sense. We should not be allocating any more spending than um, is, uh, is necessary. And it should also be within the, ba- within the bounds of the U.S. Constitution because 
that document has a has a purpose, which is to restrain the government and protect the rights of the uh, of the individual. And so that should be our guidance for what to spend money on and how much to spend, not um, some arbitrary uh, goal of we just want parity because it's political. Yeah, yeah. Okay, final question, Romina. Uh, have you looked at uh, what we do here in Australia or what's done in New Zealand with retirement savings? Have you looked at our, we have a compulsory... Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I was reading up recently on uh, on the superannuation yeah. program, I think it's called. Yeah, I mean, I like the defined contribution aspect, but I also recognize that there's a push to increase uh, the amount that employers have to pay for their employees' superannuation, and uh, and that can create distortionary incentives for um, how many individuals to employ because you're driving up the cost of labor. I, I would see, I would think that that would be an issue. But what are your thoughts on how how the system is working? Oh well, I, I think. Overall, it's it's better to have it than not have it. So we did have the problem that people were too reliant on the aged pension here. So your uh, well, our um, the, what the the uh, our social security program for for the elderly, although there are differences uh, in the uh, in the uh, the rate, and uh, it, it doesn't yeah, it's not it doesn't increase if you contribute more over your your lifetime uh in, so if you have higher earnings over your lifetime so it's different in that regard and uh yeah so i think it's it's good that we've got a, a system that takes some of the uh the pressure off the age pension but we've still got rising age pension costs it hasn't removed that problem in, entirely the the future uh, impost on the budget of our age pension is a lot lower than your social security system from what I can, just from my quick, uh, the quick look I've had at the figures. Yep. So I think it's it's good in that regard, but yep, you're right. There is that issue of the, the fact that in the short run, the it can hit employers. So we've had an increase in the contribution rate. It was 9% and they've been increasing it I think half a percent every couple of years, and now it's up at ten and a half percent, if I remember correctly. And so initially, the employer has to pay more each quarter to the Australian Tax Office. So I'm an employer, so this is something I'm very conscious of. So I've had to increase the superannuation contributions. But over the long term, I think what the expectation is that there that will come out of wages of the employees. So the employees will end up paying for it because it is a form of compensation. That's how it was initially sold in the 90s when it was introduced. So it was a a trade-off. The treasurer at the time, Paul Keating, who was on, he was part of the Labor Party. He was on the the left of politics, but it was a very uh, sensible, very moderate government. And highly praised around the world for economic uh, reforms. And the way that he sold it was that you will get this super, so you're getting this super, but it means you have to have wage restraint at the same time. So the, that trade-off was explicitly recognised. So, yeah, in the short run, there's a there's certainly an impact on employers, but the, there's a recognition that over the longer term, it, it really is the, um, the employees who will be paying for it. Um, look, there are a couple of issues with the... 
the design of of super there's a concern that these industry super funds control they have too much control or they're controlling too much money and they're too dominated by unions there are people who are concerned about that there are other people who are arguing that oh look it'd be better if people had access to this money the, uh, so they could buy a house there's a big debate about whether people should be able to withdraw from super to to buy a house uh what else uh yeah and yeah, clearly, uh, yeah. Some people might be better off if they were able to to use that money while they were while they were young. And uh, when we had COVID during the COVID period, the government did allow people to withdraw from their super accounts, and we saw a lot of people take that up. And I think they pulled ten or twenty thousand dollars out, if I remember correctly. Uh, that was very popular. So, yeah, overall, I think it's a a good thing, even though as a someone who's very sympathetic to classical liberal views, I think, oh, well, it's not good that the government's saying you've got to do this. But on the other hand, I recognise that for a lot of people, they might not be saving enough for retirement and therefore, and in that case, the government would have to, to pay for it. So, uh, look, on balance, I think it's good we've got it. There are some issues with it, sure. Um, yeah, so that that's my general. Any, yeah, is that... That all makes sense, or any questions yeah, about that? Yeah, I think it, it's it's certainly an improvement over the U.S. Social Security system, where it's the government handling the entire thing, even though there are contributions by workers and their employers. I did read that um, individuals who pulled funds from their super accounts during COVID, um, on average, spend uh, longer unemployed than individuals who didn't choose to uh, tap their uh, super accounts. So it indicates, just like in the U.S., we saw um, that uh, extended unemployment benefits tend to incentivize people to stay home longer and go back to work later. Um, Even in the context of uh, super, um, that seems to have had a, a similar effect. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's probably true. I'll have to um, look up that that uh, that evidence. If that sounds right to me, righto. Well, uh, Ramina, this has been fantastic. I think that's been a great overview of the fiscal challenges facing the US. I hope that you're they're inviting you to appear before Congress at some time to testify to to get your views because I think they're they're really well informed and uh, important views. So. Um, that's terrific. So, uh, yeah, if there's any final points, anything else to add? Uh, thank you. I just wanted to, uh, I just looked up Medicare as a percentage of GDP yeah. and it's roughly 4% right now and, right. Uh, and going up. Okay, gotcha. Right, yeah. so that is a big deal. Okay. Romina Boccia from the Cato Institute, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciated your insights and uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so, it was so fun chatting with you, Gene. Thanks so much for inviting me on your show. Of course. Okay. Thanks, Romina. Take care. Okay. That's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.